you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. June 11th, 1955, the 24 hours of Le Mans. While other racetracks had adapted to accommodate bigger, faster vehicles, Circuit de la Sarthe was behind the times. After all, it was just a country road in a small French town for 51 weeks out of the year. The technological progress of race cars was never more apparent than at this race, at this track. Cars were getting so fast that pit crews struggled to communicate with their drivers. For example, Jaguar driver Mike Hawthorne saw his pit signal too late and cut sharply across the outside of the track starting a chain reaction that would lead to the single deadliest motorsport accident in history. By the time the dust settled, 83 people were dead and an additional 120 were injured. But rather than shut the race down, race director Charles Ferru opted for et la course continue. As for our guy Phil Hill, he had been in his Ferrari for barely one lap before the massive crash. And in his first race as an official Ferrari driver, little did he know his highest achievement in racing would be mired in tragedy similar to this. Why was it a death sentence to drive for Ferrari? Aside from Phil Hill, who were some of these tragic figures? And why didn't Enzo Ferrari go to the funerals of his drivers? Today on Past Gas, the story of how the Ferrari curse was broken by an American. Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. Welcome back to Past Gas, everybody. It's part two of Phil Hill. You guys heard part one last week. We're going to finish it out this week. Yeah, Our- last week, you may not have gotten your Phil Hill fill, but this <laughs> week you're going to get straight up filled with Phil Hill. And James Pharrell. is going to die on that hill. We're going to die on that hill, and then we're going to play some Pharrell. For real. real. (laughs) Some nerd. Yeah, we're going to play some NERD. Welcome back to the show, everybody. My name is Nolan Sykes. I'm joined by the lovely voices you hear alongside me. We have James Pumphrey. LFG. That stands for Let's Freaking Go. (laughs) Got Joe Weber. This is not a test. And we have my co host from my other podcast, The Donut Racing Show. One of the authors of Racing with Rich Energy, it's Elizabeth Blackstock. I just ate like a pound of jelly beans. Hell yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's a great catchphrase. <laughs> great catchphrase. Well done. Yeah. Uh, so part two of Phil Hill. 
Our main source for this series is The Limit, Life and Death on the 1961 Grand Prix Circuit by Michael Cannell. Joe, you read this book. Liz, you read yeah. this book. Mm-hmm. Joe, you wrote this episode. If I was left to my own devices, this would have been a three-parter mm-hmm. because this one is a lot about Wolfgang von Tripps. It'll come full circle in the end, but I really love this book. As I said in the last episode, Elizabeth, how'd you feel about this book? I read it for like the third time recently and <laughs> I, I'm still obsessed with it. Like it just, it never gets any worse. Every time I reread it, I'm like, oh, take me back. It's really good. And, and you know what? Mike Hawthorne, the guy who basically started this huge accident, ended up winning Le Mans that year, which is pretty crazy that he had to, you know, go up and like get his picture taken with the trophy and stuff. And not a lot of people were happy about it, obviously. The guy who started the crash ended up winning. And then he's up there smiling while 83 people are dead. It's just kind of weird, you know. Also, Mike Hawthorne was just awful. Like he had liver failure and continued to drive while passing out. And oh put a lot God. of other people at danger regularly. So not a Jeez. great guy. Let us know if you wanted us to do an episode on Mike Hawthorne. <laughs> yeah, the, the, he's a complicated figure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He had a lot to prove. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sometimes you got to prove your worth by uh, racing with a, a failing, what was that, a liver? Yeah. And putting other drivers at risk, you know, just so they know that you're serious. Just guy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, guy stuff. Guy stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into it. Let's uh, conclude our series on Phil Hill. Wolfgang Alexander Albert Edward Maximilian Reichgraf Berg von Trips was born into a wealthy family in Cologne, Germany. His ancestors were robber barons, and he was the last in a 700-year unbroken chain of knights. Von Trips grew up in a 45-room chateau named Berg Hammersbach that had been in his family for 200 years. He was of small build and often got sick. Although he was never diagnosed, it was likely that Von Tripps had diabetes. During World War II, the Von Tripps family estate was right off the path of several bombings that forced the family into hiding. After the war, the family went back into Berg-Hammersbach to find that U.S. soldiers had commandeered it and had been using the estate as an outpost. Troops were leery of wealthy, connected German families, but surprisingly agreed to let the Von Tripps stay in one of the farm buildings on the property. Quote, We were really down. Had nothing left. Had nothing to eat. Everything was destroyed. Even so, it was one of the best times I can remember with my family. The fear of death was gone. Wolfgang later recalled, As the tension died down, he got to know the American GIs and would listen to jazz in the main house and fix jeeps with them. Wolfgang had modified his family's Citron to run on coal and wood, and the troops got a kick out of it. It was hard to deny that this kid was special. That's a interesting upbringing. I mean, you know, really wealthy kid. I mm-hmm. imagine looks like Richie Rich, <laughs> hang, hanging out with uh, these soldiers. Yeah, That's like kind of Batman. Yeah. Taffy was riding a small scooter when he saw a black BMW 500 motorcycle pull up next to him. Taffy? Oh, sorry. I forgot to mention his, the GIs gave him the nickname Taffy. That tells me all I need to know about what this yeah. kid probably He's just, like. you know, like a piece of Taffy that you pull really skinny. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Taffy was riding a small scooter when he saw a black BMW 500 motorcycle pull up next to him. He memorized the license plate, tracked the guy down, and offered to buy the bike off of him for 1,705 Deutschmarks. The guy sold Von Trips the BMW. Quote, 1,705 Deutschmarks wasn't too much for a princess, Wolfgang said. There's only one problem. His family was still broke and working in the crop fields in their family estate. So he gathered up and sold what he could. His wristwatch, his radio, and his 125cc scooter. That's so determined to like memorize the license plate and just go find it. Yeah. Pre-computer. Yeah. Didn't have Google back in those days, Joe. The frail Wolfgang started slicking his hair back, wearing leather jackets, and taking his BMW to motorcycle rallies. 
There, he met a plumber and cheesemaker, and the three started a gang and called themselves the Wild Pigs. <laughs> they would tune their bikes and learn how to squeeze more power out of them. The plumber's wife would pack a satchel full of butter sandwiches, and the boys <laughs> would head out for the weekend to test their bikes on country roads. That sounds like what we do on the weekends. Sounds fun. Chloe, Chloe packs a leather satchel full of butter sandwiches, and we go up to Tunia Canyon. Yeah, butter sandwich. Mm-mm-mm. The wild pig sowed his oats in rallies and circuits across Germany. He was teased by other riders who didn't think he was built for a life outside of his family's manor. In an attempt to prove them wrong, Wolfgang would often push his motorcycle past its limits, resulting in many accidents. This is when he earned the very clever nickname, Count Von Crash. <laughs> his friends said of him, He always had accidents. Things never worked out, but he would try again and again and again to get it right. But at the time, motorcycle racing was considered lowbrow. Being of proud German heritage, ooh, ooh, a little <laughs> problematic at that time. Especially then. Yeah. Wolfgang idolized national car racing heroes Rudolf Cacciarola and Bernd Rosemeyer, who died setting speed records on the Autobahn. He decided that if he was ever going to become a hero like Bernd Rosemeyer, he was going to have to learn how to drive race cars. His friend suggested he join the Porsche Club of Cologne and invited him to an event to convince Wolfgang. It worked. He became obsessed with the speedsters, writing, quote, At the moment, my dreams are haunted by Porsches. <laughs> Wolfgang bought a 1.3 liter Porsche 356 speedster on credit for 4,500 Deutschmarks. That's a lot for back then. Yeah, trading his BMW to make a small dent in that. The rest was won in races he entered with his Porsche. Every gold metal meant 75 smackers, Von Tripp said. His family disapproved of their son's dangerous hobby, so once he started winning more, he had to race under the name Axel Linter so his parents didn't find out. They wanted Wolfgang to come back home and work on the farm, but little Wolfgang, the taffy man, he had bigger plans. <laughs> I want more smackers. But it, <laughs> I feel like Porsches specifically do haunt your dreams once you start thinking about them. I had a dream the other night about Vipers. Oh, oh really? Mm -hmm. The snake, not the car, just covered Whoa. in snakes. <laughs> I had a dream that the roof was leaking. <laughs> oh, God. That's got to be some kind of sign, subconscious Right. What does Freud got to say? Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Uh, the roof is your mother. <laughs> the roof is your mother and you want to kiss her. <laughs> I'm going to seal up the crack in my roof by kissing it. <laughs> Ron Tripps competed in all the big endurance races in 1956. The Millimigli, Nürburgring, and Le Mans. He never took first and often ended up right in the middle at fourth, fifth, and sixth place. The Count's ability to toe the line between solid grip racing and absolutely out of control without going over the edge was astonishing. His scrawny build off track did not translate to the courage he had on track. Eventually, Von Tripp's aggressive driving style caught the eye of Il Commendatore. Enzo asked Von Tripp if he'd want to race in a 1,000-kilometer race in Christianstad, Sweden. Obviously, Lil Taffy said yes. <laughs> Wolfgang and co-driver Peter Collins drove their Ferrari 290 Millimiglia to second place, right behind Ferrari teammate Phil Hill. Ever heard of him? Hill had completed 153 laps in 6 hours, 33 minutes. Von Trips in his identical Ferrari finished 1 minute, 20 seconds behind. They all partied in the hotel bar afterwards, snagged a crate of whiskey, housed it, then returned to the crate with wads of cash stuffed in the empty bottles. Nice. Enzo liked what he saw in Wolfgang. He later wrote in his memoirs, He was a very fast and the capable of the most daring feats. Always with that slightly melancholic little smile on his aristocratic face. I just want to squeeze that. Von Trips was asked to drive in the 1956 Italian Grand Prix at Monza as a Provono, or audition to be on the Ferrari Formula One team. 
By this, the eighth race of the season, Ferrari teammate Juan Manuel Fangio had an eight-point lead on Peter Collins. Unfortunately, Von Tripp's audition never made it to the actual race. During practice, his steering wheel started to flutter when it was going over 125 miles per hour, and before he knew it, he was flipping end over end. This crash sent Wolfgang flying out of his cockpit and into a field. He thought he was dead, but realized that he was smelling dirt. If he could smell, he wasn't dead. Them's the rules. Them's the rules. That's how I always wake up in the morning. Am I dead? No. <laughs> and then I fart and I smell it. Oh, I'm alive. I'm alive. I can smell the brisket. I. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Wolfgang was lucky, but Enzo was furious. When he would get news of his driver's crashes, Enzo would often first guess, how is the car? In the case of Von Tripp's crash, not good. Von Tripp's insisted it wasn't his fault and that the car had malfunctioned. You know anything about Enzo Ferrari? It's that you never talk about the cars. They were sacred in Enzo's eyes. Fortunately for Von Tripp's, the crash investigation proved that it was a metallurgical fault that caused the crash. The steering arm had snapped, and it happened in two different Ferraris. Enzo had to forgive Wolfgang. He wrote him a note saying that he had the prize money for the Swedish race rating for him, and offering Von Tripps a contract for the 1957 Formula One season. That still doesn't make any sense why people didn't die in every crash back then. Mm-hmm. If they're getting flung out of the car, <laughs> and... you know they had some fun CTE. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, these guys were all puking and stuff. All the time. Yeah, big smooth brain back then. Mm-hmm. I think it also helps that they're probably all full of liquor too. Yeah, they're drunk. Yeah, it's also true. It was common to drink wine, like as your as your fuel, <laughs> like not water. You just have your wine. Why not? When I race now, I only drink shock top. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, the orange has a mohawk, so you know it's extreme. (laughs) Makes you go fast. (laughs) Enzo Ferrari was by no means known as a nice man and valued his machines over the lives of his drivers. When asked by Robert Daly of the New York Times why he never went to the track, Enzo said, quote, Because uh, when a man has taken something, some material, and put his own two hands, transformed it into something else... uh, has made not a machine out of it, but a soul. A living, a breathing, a soul. Well, then he goes to a race, and he is this soul, which he has created. He is it being mistreated. He is that it is not going right. It makes a man suffer here. A man cannot bear such a things. You mean suffer too much for the car, not the driver? The interview asked... Oh, yes, the driver too. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Ferrari would famously never attend his driver's funerals, instead sending his wife Laura in his place. But Enzo would still make a show of how distraught he was by sulking around his factory apartment in his bathrobe, crying loudly with his windows wide open for all to hear. The violins would come out, said American journalist and driver Denise McCluggage. But really, (laughs) this was how he calmed his public relations. As every time there's a big crash involving his cars, the Pope, the Italian government, and the press all came after him and other car manufacturers to shut down racing. In fact, following the 1955 Le Mans disaster, Mexico, Switzerland, and Spain banned racing altogether. In addition to all that, Enzo was emotionally withholding and would intimidate drivers with temperamental outbursts, bullying, and head games. One of the tactics to get the best out of his team was to have more drivers than there were cars. Enzo believed an insecure driver was a fast driver. Many would consider this behavior abusive, but Phil Hill was used to this toxic behavior from his mother and father, who uh, did not like each other, and perhaps took comfort in it. Enzo was a man I respected from whom I wanted more than anything affection and for him to be a good daddy to me, Phil Hill said. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Yeah. Freud would have had a field day. 
I mean, it's not even like he said father figure. He said daddy. good daddy. Daddy. <laughs> Be a good daddy to me. Daddy's kind of like an ironic word nowadays, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, 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 it feels loaded. It, fe- it really yes. feels loaded. Yes, it yeah. does. Sir, I love you. I love you, sir. <laughs> I am not your daddy. I am not the real father figure. I am your daddy. (laughs) We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. March 1957 was the first time Hill and Von Tripps ran a race together in which they shared a Ferrari 290 Mille Meglia. The odd duo was a departure from the normal Ferrari team driver vibe. Ferrari historically chose Garibaldinos as his Scuderia drivers. These were the Alberto Ascaris, the Eugenio Castellatolis, confident men that raced with reckless abandon and oozed absolutely seeped charisma. (laughs) They were playboys and womanizers bopping from five-star hotel to five-star hotel, drinking and picking up women before and after races, smoking cigarettes, looking cool. (laughs) Enzo didn't want his drivers to marry because that would mean that they were settling down, which in turn would make them slower drivers. That is true. Once you get like uh, <laughs> something to not die for, you end up being a little bit less dangerous. You know what I mean? It's true. Naturally, if your drivers are putting their lives on the line, you don't want them to have anything to live for, right? In Enzo's words, he wanted his drivers to put the courage and verve before cooler calculation. Phil Hill would forego the hotel bar to listen to records in his hotel room. Von Tripps was a bit more charismatic and often compared to Robert Redford. Ooh, Ooh. Sundance. But neither of them would have been considered a Grabadino in Enzo's eyes. Nothing like fellow Ferrari driver Eugenio Castellotti. Mega Chad. Mega Chad. After Ascari died, Eugenio was the premier Garabaldino. Dude, this you know guy's got I mean? like a nice little butt chin. Like in a good way, you know. He's yeah, got he looks clearly like handsome defined. Squidward. Yeah, he's, he's a good-looking guy. <laughs> this guy looks like uh, like Italian 
Like Italian, uh, Italian Josh Jackson. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Wait, is this one of those like clump situation where Josh Jackson plays all the drivers? <laughs> you know what? I think he's got the no, chops. Dude, this guy's a good, we, this... should, we, could, we should give him his uh, Brendan Fraser moment. This guy's a really good looking dude. <laughs> Best actor, Josh Jackson. Best supporting actor, Josh Jackson. Best director, Josh Jackson. Best original song in a film, Josh Jackson. Featuring Fantagram. Featuring Fantagram. Uh, yeah, I think we give Josh Jackson the opportunity to sweep the Oscars with this one. We're looking for investors. <laughs> Phil Hill for real is the <laughs> name of the movie. After Ascari died, Eugenia was the premier Garabaldino. He was brave and the ladies loved him. During a Ferrari testing session, he lost control and his car flipped, throwing him onto the tarmac and killing him. Enzo heard the news from the track and responded, What the pity? What about the car? He later blamed the crash on Castellotti, thinking too much about his fiance and not enough about driving. The Ferrari curse struck again. Then again, the danger was part of the allure, and it didn't deter drivers from wanting desperately be on the Ferrari's racing team. It may seem brutal, but it was an unspoken agreement drivers had with the teams and their cars. There was an understanding of the danger and an acceptance of what it might lead to, and anyone who sat in the driver's seat of a race car was willingly signing this agreement. Without danger, there wouldn't be any point to it, really, Sterling Moss once said. It would just become a game that anyone could play. <laughs> Unconditional courage and bravado is what set the Ferrari team apart, but it also cursed them. One of the funniest part of this part, like specifically here, is like they literally ran out of Italians. There was like no more Italian drivers at all in Italy ready to roll and take these spots. That's why they Jeez. had to go to Phil Hill and Wolfgang von Trips. Jeez, wow. I didn't know that part. <laughs> yeah. They were, they were out. They killed them all. Ferrari killed every, like almost every single one of them. Jesus. I mean, that quote from uh, Moss kind of like sheds a little light on the mindset behind these guys because it wouldn't just become a game that anyone can play. You guys are all very rich guys mm -hmm. who have access to this stuff. You're just trying to find a way that like helps you feel like you're built different from like other rich yeah. guys, you know? Yeah, when you yeah. read, a, like, I have a whole collection of books from this era, and when you read the things that they say and, like, the philosophizing they do, like, they're just trying to build a myth around themselves. You're just saying things because like, you think you sound cool. Get a job. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, you, your job is going around the world to these awesome places, drinking booze and hanging out, and then you get to race a car on Sunday. That doesn't make you special. It makes you lucky. <laughs> yeah dude you're getting real anyway yeah, uh dude. williams if you're if you're listening uh i'd love to drive for you that'd be, that'd be sick uh yeah <laughs> nolan Sargent. <laughs> one of the reasons enzo ferrari himself stopped racing was because of how insanely dangerous it was when he was competing in the 1920s and 30s he witnessed his teammates antonio ascari and ugo savocci die in horrible ways Years later, he saw Ascari's son, Alberto, die behind the wheel of a machine that Enzo had manufactured. Then others followed. Jean Riviere, Umberto Castellotti, Alfonso de Portugal, all died in Ferraris. Will God forgive me for fabricating such a fast guys? Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Enzo wrote in his memoir, the Ferrari Marquis was barely 10 years old and it had become a harbinger of death. Jeez. Yeah, dude, it wasn't as old as Tesla at this point. <laughs> it probably wasn't as old as like Lucid. No, it's Lucid started in like 2016, right? Yeah. They've been around record. for a while, a little longer before that, but yeah, so that's under a different name. Anyway, you are right, though. To be fair, this was a very deadly era in motorsport in general. Ferrari had nothing to do with the 1955 Le Mans disaster, but they also didn't stop racing when it happened. Mercedes pulled out of racing altogether as atonement, but Ferrari 
wasn't about to let anything, even death, stand in the way of building the fastest cars on the planet. He needed the blood sacrifice. Yeah, Yeah, he needed the blood. He's kind of like tomato sauce. Why why else are the cars red? So the blood doesn't show up? Exactly. Oh. It's like the opposite of like a a lab coat. Yeah. (laughs) Phil Hill had overcome the worst of his anxiety on the path to becoming a Scuderia Ferrari driver, although it wasn't completely eradicated. Quote, I've been described as anxious in four or five languages, Phil said. (laughs) Oh, that's me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's part of the quote. Phil says, oh, it's me. (laughs) But he had learned to harness his (laughs) adrenaline and focus it 100% into driving. He was doing well, but not seeing the trajectory he wanted to see in his career. At this point, he was still considered a privateer, using privately owned Ferraris to enter races. Sure, he could win a race in a borrowed Barchetta, but would his success continue in a factory-tuned formula car? Sometimes, skills don't translate across motorsport. Phil explained, There are several drivers that do well in sports cars, but can't seem to do well in a Grand Prix machine. (laughs) Always begin to be haunted by the fear that maybe I become one of them. I had to find out. (laughs) Enzo Ferrari would have private dinner with his drivers once a year. It was one of the only times they could get a temperature check from Il Comandatore himself and see where they stood in the hierarchy of drivers. Hale pushed the issue with Enzo and got a lukewarm response. Aspietamo, vidiamo. Translated to, let's wait and see. It wasn't the answer Hill was looking for. Ferrari drivers were brazen and took chances. Phil Hill, though, is quite the opposite. When other cars would tumble off the track spectacularly, Hale would barely dent a fender. He was what other drivers referred to as a sympathetic driver and can sense when an engine was about to be pushed too far and walk it back a little bit. Phil never tormented his cars, but pushed them just enough to edge out the other ones. According to the book we read for this episode, Phil's greatest achievement was not winning at the fastest speed, but winning at the slowest. Denise McCluggage said of him, quote, he had a terrific feel of the soul of the car, and he was very good to them. So this is something that he learned as a mechanic in his early days. Um, he was really in tune with the engine. He would set up his own suspension Ooh. on his cars uh, from his training with Jaguar and MG. Um, he just really knew the car inside and out. In spite of all this, Hale made it his mission to earn a spot on the Ferrari Formula One team. Throughout 1958, he worked closely with team mechanics and even learned Italian so he could help diagnose weak points in the design and improve upon them. To prove Enzo wrong, he pushed his cars further and further to get the kind of results that would earn ill commendatory's praise. Enzo's not-good-enough attitude reminded him of his hard-to-please papa back in Santa Monica and made Hill more determined. At a 1,000-kilometer race in Buenos Aires, Hill set the fastest time in practice, beating hometown legend Juan Manuel Fangio. Hill and co-driver Peter Collins won the race and set the lap record two times. In response, Ferrari invited Hill to stay for the Grand Prix in Buenos Aires. It was an adjustment for Hill, and at first the Ferrari Dino was unruly. But by the end of practice, Hill had learned the nuances of the car, and he was tied for lap time with Von Tripp's. Unfortunately, though, Von Tripps crashed their car into a barrier during the race, ending their drive. Hill's second shot at Formula One didn't go well either. The infamous 1958 Cuban Grand Prix saw Juan Manuel Fangio being kidnapped by guerrillas and a crash that led seven spectators dead. We actually did a whole episode about that race. Yeah. Uh, Fidel Castro plays a role in it. Pretty interesting story. Go check that out. The car that caused that crash, I think, was like a yellow privately owned Ferrari. Oh. Uh, and there was like, I think the whole race had only like eight entrants or something mm-hmm. like crazy. Like, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, yeah. No one wanted to go that far. Meanwhile, a 31 year old Phil Hill was hacking away at the sports car circuits, making his promotion to F1 harder to deny. He won at the 12 Hours of Sebring. Then, in July of that year, he headed to Le Mans to prove he was worthy of Formula One. This would be the nail in the coffin, Hill thought. The 1958-24 Hours of Le Mans started like it always had. 
At 4 p.m. exactly, the drivers ran across the track, hopped into their cars, put on their seatbelts mostly, maybe, <laughs> and took off. Hill's teammate, Olivier Gendebian, drove their 250 Testarossa for the first stint. Sterling Moss took the lead in his green Aston Martin, setting a blistering pace. The Ferraris were right behind. Just a few hours into the race, the great equalizer happened. It started pouring rain, and the rain wouldn't let up for 16 hours. Oof. One by one, teams started crashing out. Hill caught up to and passed Von Trips by the third hour. The rain got so bad that he had to navigate on sound alone, driving with the most extreme cautiousness just to keep the car on track. Other drivers kept crashing, including one American named Bruce Kessler. As he was being taken to the hospital, nurses found roasted chicken Kessler had stashed in his racing suit to eat during the race. He couldn't speak French well enough to explain to them, so he took a bite out of it to show them that it was food. Thinking he was eating his own intestines, they were horrified, oh and one of the God. nurses fainted. Oh, my God. <laughs> this seems like something Zach Job would do. Oh, my God. It seems like a bit from Heavyweights. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Like when they jump off the blob and someone lands on shore instead of the water, and then it's like Goldberg like pulls out a ham hock from his. (laughs) Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a go kart scene in that movie. Oh yeah. Make it happen, Captain. That's a really good movie. Yeah, Ben Stiller is so funny. Jerry Stiller and his mom's in it. That's so funny, man. <laughs> By early morning, Hill's teammate was leading the Jaguars, but they were gaining. Lofty English and the Jaguar team had won Le Mans the last three years in a row with the D-Type, and they weren't going to let Ferrari off this easily. Eventually, the Jags passed the Ferrari and gained a 26-second lead. A quick pick later, and Hill is racing in the pitch black night, chasing down the Jaguars once again. He drove all out, and by 2.30 a.m., He was one and a half laps ahead of the lead Jaguar. Fast forward to 4 p.m. and Hill crossed the finish line in first place, having driven an average of 106 miles per hour. Hill smiled on the podium with his teammate, later calling it my uh, favorite race and the most rewarding to me. His performance in Le Mans would give Hill the reputation for being tough as nails, but would it be enough to convince Enzo to let him drive in Formula One? And not the just yet. After Lamar, Hill didn't get the call from Enzo to drive in Formula One. Denise McCluggage told him he was loyal to the point of foolishness, and Hill feared he was making a mistake being beholden to the Scuderia. His friends and fellow race car drivers wanted him to grow his spine and not be taken advantage of by Enzo. Hill decided he was going to take his fate into his own hands and accepted an offer from Maserati to drive on their team for the 1958 French Grand Prix at Circuit Rimes. Enzo Ferrari right-hand man Carlo Chidi told him, if you get in that Maserati, you'll never get in a Ferrari again. Phil clapped back saying, so be it, dude. Despite having six (laughs) cylinders less than the Ferrari, Phil drove the car to a seventh-place finish, Fastest of all other Maseratis, even the one Carroll Shelby was driving. Luigi Musso, a driver for Ferrari, had spun out trying to correct a slide, hit a curb, and was thrown from his car. As it flipped underneath him, Luigi passed away from his injuries later that night. That's another Ferrari driver down. Good lord. The Vatican newspaper reprimanded Enzo for his part in the latest motorsport death, saying racing had become, quote, a ruthless idol that demands increasingly heavy sacrifices for blood. I remember reading Jeez. that line in our Ford vs. Ferrari series. Yeah, the Pope didn't like Enzo Ferrari, man. No. Enzo met with Musso's girlfriend and wept with her, calling his racing obsession the terrible joys. She later said of Enzo, quote, He was a constructor of cars and a destroyer of souls. And yet, if you entered into his orbit... You would have given anything to never leave. Whoa. That's deep. That's what I want people to say about me. But uh, (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) He was a constructor of videos and a destroyer of (laughs) souls. 
No one knew the draw of Ferrari better than Phil Hill. With Musso gone and Hill proving his worth in a Maserati, Enzo went back on his threat and offered Phil a car for the rest of the 1958 Formula One season. Not the ideal situation for a promotion, but alas, Hill had finally been offered the spot he had dreamt of for so long. Now, Elizabeth, I heard that you're an expert on this oh, era of F1. A little bit, a little bit. It was a little bit early for what I usually do, but yeah, getting there. What do we got? What's your favorite era of F1? Uh, late 60s, early 70s, when they started getting wings oh. and aerodynamics. That's when yeah. it started to get crazy. Was it just as deadly around that time? Uh, it, I don't think it wasn't quite as bad. But it was like it was still pretty gnarly, especially once you got that downforce from the wings. Like everyone could suddenly go so much faster through a lot of turns that still were just <laughs> marked off by hay bales and stuff. Uh-huh. So yeah, it was, it was bad news bears for a lot of folks. Um, I think in '68 question mark there were three drivers who died that year, April, May, and June 7th of that year. Someone died. Jeez. Yeah, it was nuts. That's crazy. By the late 50s, Hill's teammate Wolfgang von Trips had also achieved his lifelong goal. He was a national hero in Germany, following in the footsteps of his idols, Bernd Rosemeyer and Rudolf Kerkiola. He taught driving workshops in Germany between races and rubbed elbows with wealthy socialites. He even physically filled out, no longer the scrawny, sickly boy racer he once was, but now a sinewy buff man. <laughs> a, th- a thick piece of taffy. Yeah. More of a jolly rancher than anything. <laughs> During a race at the Nürburgring, Von Trips's brakes had started to fade. Ferraris were known to have a ton of power, but braking was often an afterthought. They still used drum brakes, even though other teams saw successful results by switching to more modern discs. Jeez. Ferrari's drum brakes were known to fade during longer races, which was a huge problem for a technical course such as Nürburgring. It's a really long racetrack with a lot of turns. There's not a op- lot of opportunities to cool your brakes off. After just a few laps, Von Trips pitted and addressed the problem with his mechanics, who threw their arms up with nothing to offer. Incredibly, Von Trips was able to get another 10 laps without using his brakes at all, downshifting into turns and using the engine to brake. He ended up taking fourth place, which was an unexpected surprise for the team. Although Von Trips was able to dodge the Ferrari's curse, another teammate fell victim to it. Peter Collins was battling it out with Von Wall team driver Tony Brooks when he lost control and tumbled into the green hell. Collins was one of the most experienced drivers on Scuderia Ferrari, and his loss was tragic and demoralizing for not only the team, but all of motorsport. A few days later, an article was published entitled Peter Collins for what that pleaded for more safety measures in racing. This is not a sport, but a show where you wait to see who dies. This time, Enzo didn't fight back. Collins was integral to the success of Ferrari, and it would be very difficult to continue the program without him. Enzo vowed that the 1958 Grand Prix and Monza would be Ferrari's last. Phil Hill did exceptionally well in qualifying at Monza. The flag waved and Hill became the first American ever to lead a Grand Prix. The aggressive start was masterfully done to provoke Sterling Moss, who was known to rage to the front during the race start, and it worked. Moss took offense, and in an attempt to catch Hill, he pushed his Jaguar too hard and blew up the gearbox. Hill finished third. The rest of 1958 was fairly good to 31-year-old Hill, He landed on podium twice and got nine points for the season. More importantly than wins, though, he proved that he could be a good team player and helped Mike Hawthorne win the 1958 Formula One Drivers' Championship as he played defense against Moss and his Jaguar. That is a good team thing to do. Yeah, you got to play defense for your team. Yeah. Checo. Checo is great at defense, Mm -hmm. uh, even though Max doesn't appreciate it. Wah, wah. Hawthorne was the first British-born Formula One champion, and determined to be the one Ferrari driver to escape with his life, he retired. In doing so, he made Phil Hill the most promising Ferrari driver on the roster, wishing him luck and singing his praises, saying, I think Phil has an excellent chance of becoming a world champion if his luck 
doesn't run out. Remember when Scotty tries to do the Dr. Evil laugh and it's really awkward? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, Hawthorne was only able to enjoy his retirement until January. He was leaving his estate in England with his Jaguar Mark II when a Gullwing Mercedes driven by the heir of Johnny Walker pulled up next to him. They raced on wet streets at more than 100 miles per hour until Hawthorne lost control, slid 180 degrees, and hit a curb. His Jaguar was found wrapped around a tree. He died on impact. This now marked the fourth Ferrari driver death within 19 months. Jeez, man. Dude. Just picking them off. Keep it off the streets. Keep it off the streets. But I think it probably worked out for that air guy. Oh, the Johnny Walker? Yeah. Air? He's probably fine. He was chill. Yeah, he he went on. He was the the co-owner of the Cooper team. So he actually did pretty well. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Well, funny how things work (laughs) out, you know? And his whiskey is pretty good, honestly. Yeah, small world. You kill a guy in in street racing and then uh, get to do some real racing. And you know what? F1's is a small town, you know? Yep. (laughs) We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Phil Hill won his first Formula One race in front of thousands of screaming Tafosi at Monza in September of 1960. That's Tafosi, our Ferrari super fans. But as Hill relished the victory, the seas of change were coming to F1. As a safety measure, the FIA dictated that for the 61 season, engines could not be bigger than 1.5 liters, and the cars must not weigh more than 450 kilograms, or 990 pounds. You're going to get some little... Fast little boys out there. (laughs) (laughs) The Brits were buggered by the rule change and saw it as a slight against them for absolutely dominating the last decade. But in Modena, Enzo was already planning his comeback. With the help of designer and engineer Carlo Citti, Ferrari had secretly developed the Tipo 156, nicknamed the Shark Nose. It was a sleek, torpedo-shaped fuselage with two angled vents up that looked like a shark's nostrils. I've, I think I've seen this car before. The 1.5-liter really cool. V6 sat behind the driver and produced 200 horsepower. There's no question that it would be highly competitive with the British cars. The only question Ferrari had was, who was going to win the championship? Phil Hill or Wolfgang von Trips? The Taffy Man. <laughs> He's sweet with that car. <laughs> Enzo refused to designate a primary driver to get the most out of the two. Hill had a slightly better chance at the championship. A year earlier, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated for the swimsuit edition. Almost said birthday suit edition. Uh, No, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated with the caption, Sports Car Driver of the Year. Even Sterling Moss said, quote, This is Phil's year. He has the ability on the car. Hill had come full circle from a kid who was so nervous he had to eat baby food to a confident, mature driver who could control his emotions. Von Trips had calmed down as a driver as well and took some advice from Hill, who almost never crashed. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. X-Lax. We all heard that. <laughs> Try it alone. 
1961 Formula One season started spectacularly. Sterling Moss drove one of his most brilliant races in Monaco, finishing first despite his car being 20 miles per hour slower than the Ferraris. Von Trips won the second at Zandvoort, and Hill won the third at Spa-Francorchamps. The shark nose is proving to be the car to beat, as it took first through fourth in Belgium. Going into the latter half of the season, points were close between Sterling Moss, Wolfgang Von Trips, and Phil Hill. Von Trips. Wait, was- sorry, I just want to go back to the, the Zandvoort race. Was the first ever Formula One race that no car retired and every single car that started finished? Oh, wow. What? Which was like a huge milestone for reliability uh-huh. for these kind of cars. Interesting. Uh, yeah, huge deal. Very cool. Von Trips was favored to be the winner following his victory in Great Britain. Hill and Von Trips, who were great friends before, found it hard this season to be buddy-buddy. Hill visited Berg Hemmersbach during the mid-season break, but the two remained cautiously distant. It's not a normal situation race drivers are in, Phil said. Try beat the other guys all day, and then at night you're supposed to forget all that? Nah, dude. That's weird, bro. Nah, dude. That gets me all pitted. That... You got me weirded out, bro. Not gonna lie, dude. Your vibe? The vibe's off right now. Vibe is off. I came all the way here to Germany to hang out with you. I just want to come out here and vibe out at your cool pad, bro. And you're harshing me over this racing, bro? This is inconsequential, my guy. Von Trips was uncharacteristically reflective before the Italian Grand Prix at Monza. That's never a good sign, I think. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> Don't start thinking about it. That's not no. good. Don't reflect before a race. Reflect uh-uh. after a season. Never reflect before a race. <laughs> Every driver has a place deep inside of him where he is afraid of death. He said. This could all end tomorrow. (laughs) Phil Hill, on the other hand, was a nervous ball of energy. Very relatable. His car malfunctioned in practice, and no one believed him. Enzo met Phil's frustration with his typical dismissive tone, saying, Are you sure it isn't something wrong with your foot? Hill insisted, No, Enzo, my foot is just fine. Could it be your leg? <laughs> Maybe uh, what did you connect to the leg bone of the hip bone? <laughs> Hill insisted the engineers replace the, the engine. Also buco. And after an all-nighter, they found a faulty valve spring. Hmm. Phil spent that morning breaking in the new engine on the streets outside of Monza, preparing for the race of his life against his teammate. Von Trips started on pole position. Hill was back in fourth place, with two other Ferraris separating him from the man he had to beat to win his first championship. The Italian flag waved, and the cars were off. Von Trips bungled the start, quickly finding himself trailing Hill. As Hill created distance between the two, Von Trips began to drive with a feverish urgency. After all, the championship title was going to be decided by this race. Going into the backstretch of the second lap, Von Trips was only slightly ahead of Jim Clark, in his Lotus Climax. A few hundred feet before the turn, Von Trips miscalculated how far Clark was behind him and cut over, only to clip Clark's front wheels with his rear tires. The collision sent Von Trips into the grass at 150 miles per hour, slamming him into a bank and tumbled into a fence lined with spectators. Von Trips was crushed and then flung from his car. Five spectators were killed instantly by the tumbling Ferrari, and another ten would later die from their injuries. Jesus. If you can find that video on YouTube, it's like, it's scary. There's video of this? Yeah. They had YouTube back then? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They invented it just for this. Jim Clark helped push Von Tripp's Ferrari off the track, but couldn't bear to look at Wolfgang lying motionless on the tarmac. The debris in Von Tripp's body were cleared, and the race went on, albeit with three other Ferraris dropping out. Enzo, who was watching the race on TV from his home, said, Abbiamo perdido. Or, we, we have lost. Yes. 
Despite the crash, Hill battled on. Two hours later, he crossed the checkered flag in first place. Hill had won the race and in doing so, secured enough points to win the championship. Uncertain of his teammate's fate, he stoically accepted the trophy on the podium. Ferrari engineer Carlo Chidi hugged Hill and said bravo and gave him a hand-wavy response when Hill asked about Von Tripps. Hill gathered that the news wasn't good, but accepted the crowd's applause nonetheless. At the risk of seeming to be callous, I can only say that my emotional defenses are pretty strong, he later wrote. Phil Hill's championship win was heavily overshadowed by the tragedy. Von Tripps became a national hero like his idols, but not in the way that he had wished. Hill returned to the U.S. as the first American Formula One champion, but he didn't get the praise expected of a national hero. The win was barely a blip on the radar of most Americans. Formula One was still a distant sport in the U.S., and a case of horrible timing shrouded the accomplishment as Roger Maris had just beaten Babe Ruth's home run record. But Phil didn't mind. He was content to be out of the spotlight. And that's the end of our story about Phil Hill winning the championship. He didn't even get to race at Watkins Glen that year. That was the race after Monza and Ferrari was just like, nah, we don't need to go. You don't yeah, even he get was, to go race in front of your home crowd. Honestly, probably was, saved his saved him. Did he die horribly behind the wheel, Liz? Nope. No, he, he died uh, of old age in like 2007. Oh, that's yeah. a relief, dude. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> One of the few. He wow. retired from racing. He got married. He had a family. By all accounts, it was a functional one. Yeah. Dang. He seems like just, I'm glad things worked out for him because he seemed like a nice guy and didn't want to like showboat ever. Just seemed like he wanted to do what he loved. Yep. Wow. What a story, man. Made it out alive. Good for him. Uh, we're going to take some listener mail now. Hi, guys. Love the show, and I listen to it every week. I'm a Porsche-file, so I really enjoyed your episode on November 21st about Porsche, sorry, and the 924 and 944. I was particularly taken by your mention of the Panamera and all the love you showed for the long-body version, the Sport Turismo. I couldn't agree more. I have a 2021 Panamera Sport Turismo 4S, and she is by far my favorite car. Whew, that is a... That's a machine a nice right car. there. That's a cool car. Yeah. I love the Panamera. It looks, like, looks to be like an eggplant color. I love it. Yep. I'm a middle-aged woman, so when I innocently pull up to a red light in my fat bottom girl, the hooner in the lane next to us <laughs> thinks we're just a soccer mom in a station wagon. Then the light changes. While his little fart can sputters and spews to get off the line, the Sport Turismo and I are already halfway down the road. Hell yeah, <laughs> dude. Hell yeah. All the Hooner can do is squint into the distance at the back end of us and try to figure out what that unbadged rocket was. The fact that she is purple just adds to the fun. Thanks for the great podcast series, and I look forward to more episodes. That's from Mary Ellen Williams in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Hell yeah. Sports Turismo 4S. Thank you so much for your email, Mary. Uh, I love hearing stories like that. The car it does. Awesome. It looks like an eggplant. Yeah, that's Cute. sweet. I love that. Um, Job had one of those things down in uh, Argentina when he went down to check out yeah. the uh, synthetic fuel factory down there, and he loved it. And there's like a version with a twin turbo V8 and a hybrid system as well, and it's like one of the fastest accelerating cars you can buy, I think, right now. Well, what's crazy. that edition called? Uh, I don't know. I am ignorant and know nothing. Uh, so, yeah, if you'd like to get in <laughs> contact with the show, please hit us up. Pastgas at DonutMedia.com. We might read your story on the air. Uh, and you can be just like Mary with her awesome Porsche. Liz, thank you so much for joining us in this series. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk about race car. We yeah. love race car. Uh we love race car. We love race car. Liz and I and our friend Alanis actually have a very race car centric podcast called Donut Racing Show. Go check it out. And also go buy Liz and Alanis's book, Racing with Rich Energy. It's all about rich energy and Haas Formula One. Uh, very good book. Go check it out. Guys, James. Yeah. You're uh, at James Pump Free on social media. I am. And I'm not just saying that, guys. I want you to open up your social media. I want you to go freaking follow me. 
Yeah. So I've plateaued. <laughs> I play. I, I was plateaued. I was hardcore plateaued for like six months, and then I did my uh, engagement post a couple weeks ago and got like five thousand followers at least Aww. over the course yeah. of the last oh, few weeks. The people the fans of the engagement. News. Yeah. Now, now that's the, what I call engagement. Yeah. <laughs> so the ladies will finally let. The, or the boys will finally let their gals follow. Yeah, so if you want to boost your numbers no out there, go get engaged. It'll help you <laughs> out. Dad, why are you following Nolan Sykes? Automotive's number one bachelor. <laughs> oh, he's engaged to be married? Oh, that's fine. Okay. As long as he's going to be wed. <laughs> <laughs> go follow Joe at Joe G. Weber as well. Joe, I haven't seen much cooking content lately. Let's see. I oh, s- is that what? You think is holding me back? No, I just want to see more recipe. I want to see you in the in the stew, which is what I call your kitchen. Both in the uh, stew, like a uh, soup, but in, in the, the stew, yeah. making the, the, the cooking studio or your kitchen. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I just did the other day? I did a, a thirty-six hour sous vide uh, beef short rib with uh, vermouth and shallot a reduction sauce wow. over okay. uh, mashed potatoes and roasted carrots. That sounds delicious. And you can you can uh, follow. Elizabeth on social media, Eliz Eliz, Eliz underscore Blackstock on Twitter oh. or Eliz A. Blackstock on Instagram. There you go. Uh, big thank you to our producers again, Christina Felsky and Gavin Kinzel, and our writer this week, Joe Weber, our very own. And also the main source, The Limit, Life and Death on the 1961 Grand Prix Circuit by Michael Cannell. Check that book out if you want to know more. A lot of a lot of the story was left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, it was. It's hard to believe, but our 200th episode is coming up. We're about to record it. Uh, We're going to do kind of a grab bag episode, include some viewer emails to get those in there. We're going to include shorter versions of ideas that you guys have sent us uh, that aren't uh, quite hefty enough to turn into a full hour. And I would really love if you guys would take the liberty of writing some fanfic. I want to I want to know what Nolan and Joe would be like after 50 years of marriage. I want I want uh, an alternate universe where we all live on a spaceship. Uh, fan fiction, you know, like some narrative accounts. Just plug in me, Joe, uh, Nolan, maybe even producer Christina and Gavin. What are we all doing in, uh, in, in these alternate worlds? Uh, nobody else wants this but me. So, uh, but I would absolutely love it. So, and, uh, if it's really good and, or weird, we're going to read it in our 200th episode, which is coming up very soon. I can't wait to see what you guys put together. Cause you're a bunch of real freaks. Don't make it like super weird. We still want to be like family friendly. All right. I don't want to like nothing really, really weird. All right. So no, like full pen. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Past Gas. Boy. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, 
Whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.